Well, this morning, as we were in service together, a pastor before service began said, I may need you to preach this evening. I'm struggling with a little bit of a bug or stomach issue, and, and I watched him, and I thought, you know, he's not going to make it through the service. And so I started flipping through the scriptures trying to decide, okay, if he doesn't make it, what am I going to do? And about two weeks ago, I uh, was wakened early in the morning, and I had a message kind of in my heart. And, uh, and I actually told Pastor, I, you know, Pastor, anytime um, you feel like you can't step into the pulpit, never hesitate to ask. There's always a message on my heart. And um, so this afternoon, this morning, first hour, I thought, well, maybe it'll be this morning, not this evening. But he made it through beautifully. Both services preached a wonderful message today. You would never know that he was struggling at all. I appreciate Pastor Brady and Pastor Kerry. I mean, Kerry so much. Um, they are wonderful servants of the Lord and uh, great leaders. And it's a joy to serve alongside. Uh, them as our leaders. Uh, I want you to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to look at as our text today, verse 17. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. The scripture says, Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who are living according to the pattern we gave you. Paul is saying, Follow my example. As I follow Christ, follow me. And take note of brothers and sisters in the Lord who are faithful followers of Christ, how they are following as well. And really, that's why we come to church, isn't it? We want to be followers. And so we, we model, model ourselves after Christ, He and the Word of God, and the leading of the Holy Spirit. But we really do look to one another. And, uh, and so Paul challenges us in that way. Years ago, I, um, well, you guys know my story. I, I, as a teenager, I was really, I wasn't a typical athlete. I really wasn't very good at normal sports. I was lousy at baseball. I was lousy at basketball. I was vertically challenged. Uh, I really wasn't very good at your normal sports. But I kind of excelled at the unusual. I excelled in gymnastics and diving and excelled in skiing and, and uh, skydiving and those types of kind of on the edge type of sports. And, and uh, that was my teen years. I lived on a trampoline. I lived in a gym. And it was a big part of my life. Well, when I went off to college, I started uh, skiing at a place called Clear Fork. It was uh, uh, there in Butler, Ohio, real close to Mount Vernon Nazarene College. It was about a 15, 20-minute drive from the university and we would go and teach skiing. And Billy Murray and I, we were best friends. And the owners of the ski lodge, were, they, were, they, were fam- they were a family. It was a family-owned ski lodge. And the black family owned the lodge. And so I got to know the family a little bit. And Werner Seidel was the um, ski school coordinator. He was from Sweden. He had a real strong Swedish accent. And, you know, he was kind of a ladies' man. And, you know, he teaches teach skiing and all that kind of stuff, and, and, uh, and everybody would just kind of, the girls would just kind of fall over this guy. And, you know, it was just 
for the most part, a real family atmosphere, and it was a wonderful time for me. And uh, I was a gymnast, of course, and so when skiers started flipping on skis, my best friends, they went to a freestyle camp, and they went to Eddie Ferguson's Flying Freestyle Camp, Flying Eddie Ferguson's Freestyle Camp. And they came back, and they could not do some of the tricks because they weren't gymnasts. But I was, and so they built the ramps and the jumps, and, and I learned how to flip on skis. Well, that was in my hometown of Xenia, Ohio. We skied at a place called Sugar Creek, and I learned to flip on skis probably my senior year of high school, my freshman year of college. Well, I was there at the jump club, I mean at the um, ski, ski lodge, and and uh, we were jumping, and, you know, I had an old pair of Olin Mark IVs, and they were 180 skis, kind of a medium-length ski, too long to really do a flip on, but I would, could jump over the jumps on those skis. And because I was a gymnast, I could jump high and go far and, and do several tricks, and it was just a big, a lot of fun, just kind of a party atmosphere and just a, a really a good time. Well, uh, I said to a friend of mine, you know, I could flip over that jump and and uh, he said well you should do it you should do it and and I said well I don't have the right size skis then I said to somebody else you know I could flip over that jump and and they they said no you can't nobody flips well this was just nobody was doing that kind of stuff there was only a handful of people in the country who were flipping at that time and so it was pretty no one had ever flipped a clear fork And so I went to the rental barn, and I got a short pair of 150 skis from the rental barn, and I tightened the bindings down as tight as you can get them. And, and of course, I was an experienced gymnast, and so it was no big deal for me, you know, just to go over the ramp, lay back, and do a backflip, land perfectly on the ground. And the next time I did it again, and I did a spread eagle and and, uh, land perfectly on the ground, I kept going up and down, and, you know, people began to gather around this jump. Because they had never seen anyone ever before do a flip off of a ramp. And I'd done it before. It was nothing new to me, but it was completely new to, to them. And a crowd gathered that day. I put the skis away, and, and it was probably the next week sometime that I got the skis out again and did it again. And, and the crowd kind of gathered around. And, and, um, and then the following week, I did the same thing. I rented this, got the skis and, and did the flips. And, and then... The Black family called me in, and there was Werner Seidel. Our, he was the, you know, the instructor, the teacher, um, and I was a ski instructor and an employee of the ski lodge. And he said, you know, you can't flip here. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we won't allow you to flip here. Well, I was an employee, and so, of course, I didn't. So that was the last of it. I never flipped again. But to my amazement, the following week, signs went up all over the ski lodge. No inverted aerials. No one had ever flipped before. I was the only person. Every sign in that place was just for me. (laughs) And I wonder, what are the signs that we, what are the signs that point to Christ in our lives? Are we leaving a message to the world around us. That message was not negative or positive. It's just a statement, no inverted aerials. But what message are we leaving? 
Well, Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 16, I think gives us a little bit of a road map on how we ought to live. And tonight, I'm just going to walk us through the Scripture. I just jotted down a few notes this afternoon as I prepared for this evening, and we're going to walk through those together. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. I want to know Christ. What does it mean to know someone? To have an intimate relationship with them. I want to know Christ. We get to know people when we walk through the valleys together. When we go through hardships together. Edgar and I have a fond relationship. And we know each other well because we've worked together side by side for a lot of years. Time plus truth equals trust. And we have confidence in one another. But you get to know somebody often quickly because of a trauma or a traumatic experience. When I was a a young man, we met as a college group at our church there in in Xenia, Ohio, and and Bill Tudor, one of the guys in the group, he said, hey, let's go to the river. I know this great swing. And so he, you know, took us down to the river, and, and we went down this wooded path where he thought the swing was, and when we got there, there was no swing. So we got in the river, and he said, just follow me. It's right down here. I know it's just right down here. So we walked in the water, and it was somewhat shallow, shallow up to our knees, uh, sometimes just above our knees, to this rope, but we never found it. And the further we walked, the longer we realized it was, we had walked too far to go back. And we'd have, even if we went back, we probably couldn't make our way up the embankments. And, and so we decided our best bet was just to walk to the bridge. Well, when you drive in a car and when you walk in the river, the distance to a bridge is... A long ways. It seems like a short ways in the car. Just It's just around the bend, but we were in the river. And the sun started going down, and now it's getting dark. And then here's these college students, guys and girls, walking in the river together, holding hands. And every now and then a stick would hit your leg, and you would think it was a snake, and you'd hear a scream. And, and now it was beginning later and later and darker and darker, and we were realizing we were in a serious situation. How are, we ever, how are we ever going to get out of the river together? And it wasn't until midnight, 1 o'clock, that we actually climbed out of the river at the bridge that night. Well, that was a traumatic experience, and yet it was a bonding experience for those of us who walked down that river together. We were really, literally trying to survive. It was, the banks were too high. We couldn't climb out, and the only choice, and sometimes the water was getting up to our waist, and we were trying to make sure no one was swept away in the river. Paul says, I want to know, verse 10, I want to know Christ. You see, you get to know someone when you walk through the valley with them. I've been privileged to be one of your pastors now for a little over 22 years, and and we know one another. 
We know our stories, our illustrations. You were probably surprised that I told one that you had never heard before. We know each other. Many of us have walked through difficult waters together. Paul is saying, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to know the authority of his resurrection. Verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. You see, sometimes I I think that we don't take, we take for granted the authority that is ours in Christ Jesus. For what is true of Christ in the death and resurrection is true of us. Because we are his heirs, his children. We've been adopted into his kingdom. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. You see, Paul understood that it was through the hardships that, that Christ was able to defeat death, hell, and the grave. And I want to share in that suffering. He understood the, the words of James 1-2. Consider it pure joy, my brother, when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because it develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Paul didn't want it to be easy. He wanted it to be all that was ever going to come. Whatever it means, I'm all in. I want to know Christ and the power. I want to know His authority. I want to be able to stand with Him and the power of His resurrection. Sharing in the fellowship, resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His suffering. Becoming like Him in His death. I think one of my favorite verses is found in Romans chapter 6 where we have that illustration of baptism. Dying with Christ and being resurrected with Him. It's no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. And what is true of Christ is now true of me. He has defeated death, hell, and the grave, and I have died to self, and I am resurrected with Him. And there's this visual image of the power of the resurrection. Verse 11. And somehow, and so somehow, I think Paul is kind of saying, I really don't quite understand it all. But somehow, to attain the resurrection from the dead. I think if we were honest, we would probably say the same thing. I'm not real sure how this resurrection thing works, but I believe it does. Many of us might say, I don't long... Death, and I don't long for the resurrection. I'm not signing, I don't want to get on the next train. I don't want to punch my ticket. But we choose to believe in the power of the resurrection. And Paul is saying here, verse 11, and so somehow, through the miracle of God, through what Christ did on the cross, to attain the resurrection from the dead. And then he says in verse 12, 
Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. We always struggle with that word perfect. Jesus said, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we say, whoa, whoa, wait, I'm so far from perfect. But Paul, in his honesty, says, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I love this verse. I press on to take hold of Jesus. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. You see, on the road to Damascus, when Jesus came to Paul and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You're struck him blind. There was this life transformation. And for many, at an altar of prayer, in kneeling beside their bed, in the quietness of a hotel room, there's been this conversion experience where life is forever changed. And Christ encountered them. Christ encountered me. And I say with Paul, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. How many of you would say you're perfect? But we would say with Paul, not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I continue the journey of faith. I press on to take all that Christ has for me. And then he says, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Forgetting what is behind. For Paul, in this story, it's a story of success. It's a story of achievement. It's also a story of persecution. Let's look at verses 4b through 9. He says, If anyone else thinks he has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faithful, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Paul is saying, forgetting what is behind. For Paul, it was many achievements, many accomplishments, but it was also persecution. I, in my mind, imagine Paul standing there at the foot of Stephen as he collected the coats of those who would stone Stephen and the coats were at his feet watching as Stephen was stoned to death. Paul led the charge of persecution on the Christian church. And I would imagine in his mind there was this conflict 
He's had this encounter with Christ, and now he's proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, and yet there was the persecution, the horror of the persecution, seeing Stephen stoned, one of the saints, stoned. And so he had in his mind all these accomplishments, but he also had in his mind all these failures. And he says to us, forgetting that which is behind and straining towards that which is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You see, we're called to put behind us the past. To get off our couch, to get out of our seat, and to move forward in faith. What is the successes that might keep you from following Christ? The pride of life. I think so often we fail to recognize the opportunities that are ours as followers of Christ because of our pride. You see, a lot of doing the work of God is really about being a servant of the Lord. It's not about position. It's not about popularity. It's, not, it's about being a servant. And because we don't quite understand that, we think it's beneath us. And yet Christ turned our world upside down, and the last would be first, and the first would be last, and He came to serve, not to be served. And how often do we miss the opportunity to be Christ to our world because of our pride? Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. Then in verse 15, he says, All of us who are mature should should take such a view of things. I think I skipped 14. Did I skip 14? I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward. In that verse 14, um, we need to move forward. And the way we move forward best is to confess. Lord, I'm allowing the pride of life to get in the way of the servant of the Lord, of being your servant. Lord, I'm allowing my past to haunt me in such a way that it's keeping me from moving forward in faith. Is there anything in your life that's keeping you from moving forward? Sometimes self-pity keeps us from moving forward, from being ambassadors of reconciliation. When we were young, Debbie and I, we... Uh, took a position as interns at the Lakeview Park Church of the Nazarene, and and we lived in a parsonage. It was actually a missionary house. It it smelled a lot like maple syrup. I only came to realize later in life that that smell is associated with cockroaches. <laughs> it, it was really pretty clean for the most part, but uh, there was kind of an odor to that. But it smelled like maple syrup. And we really had very little money. Uh, we, I was an intern, and Debbie was making $4 an hour and, and at uh, Hertz Rent-A-Car, working for the Rent-A-Car agency in a, their corporate office. And I was in school, 
And so I was going to school full-time and working there at the Lakeview Park Church in Oklahoma City. And we were living on her $4 an hour. We ate a lot of macaroni, tuna, tuna, noodle, tuna and noodle. Is that what it's called? Tuna and noodle casseroles. And to be honest, Debbie wasn't that good of a cook. <laughs> She's become a phenomenal cook. When we first got married, I had more experience in the kitchen than she had and, and uh, over, the, over the years. And, you know, you can allow yourself pity. Everybody around us, they seemed like their families were there in town. We were the only ones that were transplants to that Lakeview Park Church. A lot of them had homes, and it didn't smell like maple syrup. And they had their own furniture. When we first uh, moved there, all of our belongings were stolen. And so the little single-axle trailer that we had was broken into, and the brand-new TV and the brand-new linens and towels and sheets and and everything you need to set up house was taken i said to debbie debbie it's okay all we need is love (laughs) she said no we need some sheets (laughs) i said well there's sheets in the parsonage and yeah but they're not clean so we bought what we needed and And if you're not careful, you can allow your self-pity to keep you from doing the work of God. It's true for all of us. And yet, Paul calls us to press on toward the goal. And if we're going to press on, that means we can't stay where we're at. We've got to get up and we've got to press on. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Verse 14, 15. All of you who are mature should take such a view of things. At some point, you think differently. That too, God will make clear to you. So as we walk this journey of faith, the Lord will reveal to us this truth that Paul is telling us. Verse 16. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. And I love this verse. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. When Christ died on the cross... When he rose on that third day, he defeated death, hell, and the grave. And there is no sin, there is no temptation that's bigger than our God. There's no trouble, there's no trial, there's no tribulation that's bigger than our God. And our responsibility as mature followers of Christ is to live up to what we've already obtained. To grasp all that is ours, to grasp His power and His authority that has been given to us. In my Bible, there's a story of the orphan train. It's a story that took place back in 1929. Actually began in 1850. There were 30,000 orphans scattered throughout New York City. 
and to make a living, some of them would steal and, and others would be caught up in prostitution, become pickpockets for prostitutes and taking wallets and watches and, and unsuspecting Johns. It was a difficult life. Charles Loring Brace, a 26-year-old minister, was horrified by the plight of these orphans left stranded there in New York City. So he had a brilliant idea, and that was the orphan train. And the idea was we'll send trains of children westward. We'll announce to every city that they go to that there are children, orphans, that could be adopted into your family. And these children, as many as 100,000 by the year 1929, went on that orphan train. Two became governors. One was a U.S. congressman. Another, a Supreme Court justice. One of these orphans arrived in a city in Lansing, Michigan. There was an elderly couple, Mr. and Mrs. Ford. Picked him up in an automobile. They'd never ridden in an automobile before. Took him to the biggest house he'd ever seen in his life. And the elderly couple said to them, Everything I have is yours. And Jesus says to us, You're my child. Everything that I have is yours. What is true of Christ is now true of us. He defeated death, hell, and the grave. And he gives us the power and authority. Not that I've already obtained all this, I've already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of for me. We are victors in Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love and the power and authority that is ours in Christ Jesus. We struggle in life. There are times, Lord, that we forget all that is ours in you. But help us, Lord, to keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Help us to be a people who continually say, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. Help us, Lord, to live our lives in such a way that we begin to grasp and understand what it means to be your follower, to live our lives worthy of your calling. And help us to press on toward the goal to win the prize which you have called us heavenward in in your son's name. Amen.